The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So tonight's the third talk in this sequence. And we'll probably continue for a few more weeks. And like with any of these themes that we take up at different times, it's, you know, on one level, it's just nice to think about the mind and think about what goes on in the mind. But the real value of these themes is to, in a sense, take it home and use these particular set of teachings or these particular this particular map of the mind to notice what effect it has. So, for example, as you're going through your day and you remember, oh yeah, equanimity. Well, it's amazing. Even something as simple as that, just remembering the word equanimity changes the mind. It's like uh, you can't have that thought, equanimity, without having some sense of what that word is pointing to. You know, and it, it just initiates a present moment investigation or reflection in the mind. It opens the mind to other possibilities. The real, um, I guess, hurdle, you know, the one hurdle that we all have to get over, over and over, you know, moment by moment, is we tend to get settled into a mind state, into the mind having a way of being in a moment. And one of the aspects of this sort of getting caught or settled into some predictable pattern, the element of most of our patterns is this quality that it can't be, you know, it's like uh, the way that the mind is seen somehow defines everything. So there's no part of the mind that wonders, like, is the mind limited or not? So we go about our day, or through our moments, not recognizing, not even having any sense that how we're seeing, how we're understanding the moment is limited. Like, for example, how many times today, as you were going about your day, did the thought, did the insight arise that however you're relating to your present moment experience, that it was limited? Right? It never occurs to us that our way of being, our way of relating, our way of understanding, seeing things, is limited. There's a basic ignorance where we assume that the mind is, is seeing things clearly, understanding things deeply. Right? It never occurs to us otherwise. So when we have a particular theme, like equanimity or anyone, you could have the theme of kindness or the theme of... of um, you know, even focus, like getting focused, seeing just one thing, doing one thing at a time. But any particular, any useful theme, it's going to challenge the mind. It's going to challenge, basically, the ignorance in the mind, the mind that assumes everything's fine, it's already doing a good job, I don't need any instructions. So with equanimity, you know, it's just to understand what that is. I'd like to come back to Sylvia Burstein's uh, very simple, beautiful description in her book, Pay Attention for Goodness Sake. And she has a chapter on equanimity, one of the ten perfections of the heart. 
When my mind greets all moments with equal respect, it maintains stature enough to see that causal connections set everything, set every experience into its lawful time and place, that everything is always breathtakingly the only way that it can be. My heart resting in equanimity can respond with compassion that everything is always breathtakingly the only way that it can be. So this is a really profound, I mean, when it's developed, when it's strong, it's a profound softness in the mind. And it's a bit of a provocative word, you know, because we have a, a sense that in order to survive the difficulties in life, the mind needs to be hard, it needs to be um, you know, protected in some way. But this is something to really explore in our experience. What kind of mind or what kind of heart is actually functional, useful in the, in the life we're actually living? Not to just assume that hardness is good. And so there are different ways to begin to soften the mind. I thought tonight we could just look at uh, the different ways in two categories. One way that softens the mind and really opens it up to equanimity. Now, equanimity doesn't mean being passive. It's just that understanding that everything is already breathtakingly the only way that it could be. It's an understanding that arises when the mind is in alignment, isn't distorted by its self-centered thinking, so it's in alignment with the way things are. And it understands, you know, even though we might have preferences for this moment to be different than what it is, the mind can understand when it's in alignment that it can't be other than it is right now. You know, given all of the conditions, all of the causes, this moment can't be other than what it is. But there's a more simple kind of equanimity I want to begin to talk about. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned, you know, uh, something that we probably all have seen in our lives is a kind of hungry mind, always trying to fix, always trying to make things a little bit better, always trying to push things out of the mind that are irritating, that don't make sense, that are disturbing. So this controlling, fixing, denying mind, we all know well, you know, different for each of us. Some of us emphasize denial as a strategy. Other, others of us emphasize control as our predominant strategy. But they're both fix-it strategies. It's a struggle with the way things are. We don't like the way things are, or we like it and we want it to last. But we're in this adversarial relationship with the present moment. But one of the easiest ways just to soften the mind, to change that sort of way of relating with hunger, is just to get concentrated. I mean, concentration is not the best translation of the word samadhi. But as I mentioned in the guided sit, when we collect the attention with something like the breath, or collect the attention in the present moment with sound. There's a basic contentment that arises in the mind. It's not a contentment because the mind is, is concentrated. 
It's a contentment because the mind isn't doing disturbing things. Like when I'm not thinking about things that disturb the mind, my mind naturally expresses a happiness, which you could call contentment or peace. So we want to explore this because it, it gives us a taste of what equanimity is like. It's, it's like uh, allows us to experiment with equanimity and to realize, oh my God, this is a great mind state to have in life. Meaning, because theoretically, equanimity seems like maybe it isn't so appropriate in this kind of world. Equanimity, are you kidding? You know, we have that sort of reaction like, yeah, in a perfect world, equanimity would make sense. But in this kind of world, how could someone function with equanimity? But when, you, when the mind gets concentrated, it lets go of all, I mean, the definition in a Buddhist sense of concentration, samadhi, is when the mind has begun to abandon, and maybe completely, in moments, completely abandon things that are irritating, that are disturbing the mind. That's the technical definition of samadhi, or concentration. It's a mind free of afflictive states. And it can happen momentarily, or it can be more stable and last for a period of time. But it's interesting to notice, so when we do have those moments of concentration or samadhi, we don't want to just rest, although it's nice to rest in that state, in a sense, and to just let the mind heal. But it's also useful to get interested, like, what is this pleasant state my mind is abiding in? And to really see the contentment, and to understand that the contentment isn't something that's here, it's really about what's not there in the mind. The mind isn't being disturbed by thoughts about the future. The mind isn't being disturbed about thoughts about the past. The mind isn't being disturbed by thoughts of comparing me to you or this to that, what I like and what I don't like. All of that kind of self-centered thinking is gone for a while because the mind is paying attention to the breath or the mind is aware of the body or the mind is aware of walking or whatever the mind is using to collect itself in the present moment, it's by definition needing to let go of everything else. You can't do both. I can't be worrying and aware of the breath coming in with real intimacy. When there's the absence of that, those agitating patterns in the mind, and there is that contentment, the, that basic instinct or habit of the mind to be looking for stable happiness, wanting, wanting to get rid of what might be in the way of happiness, that hunger begins to dissipate. The basic uneasiness of the mind or the basic uh, movement of the mind begins to dissipate. And what you could call an inner stillness or peacefulness begins to manifest because the mind is concentrated or has collected itself in the present moment. And then with that relative stillness, we get at the flavor of equanimity. Because the mind is content, the hunger is dissipated, the mind isn't looking to be happy because it's already feeling content and happy, then whatever we notice in those moments, we'll be noticing through the lens of equanimity. Instead of through the lens of being a hungry beast, 
wanting something good, wanting to avoid danger, which is our normal way of looking, seeing, experiencing life. We're a hungry beast. And sure you notice this with your pets. You know, a lot of the time, and especially wild animals, you know, when you observe them, they may be relaxed. There are a lot of admirable qualities of wild animals and even our pets if they haven't adopted our neurotic patterns. But certainly wild animals, there are a lot of beautiful qualities about wild animals. But you can pick up this sort of never-ending hunger. And I'm not, I don't mean just like hunger for food, but it's a, it's a sort of vigilance that comes with tension. And uh, human beings, we have, a, we have the possibility of going beyond that. I mean, animals do too. We're an animal. But we can do it more consciously. We can understand the, uh, you know, how non-functional it is a lot of the times to be hungry, to be acting with greed and grasping in the mind. So we, the basic way, like I've been mentioning, is just to learn to do one thing at a time and to collect our attention in this way, you know, to make the mind really simple, just breathing in, just reaching the arm forward to turn the light on, just walking, just brushing our teeth, just fully, completely doing whatever we're doing. It, it profoundly simplifies the mind because we're just doing that one thing. The mind is more limited. It can't do a lot of neurotic activity because it's just doing that one thing. There's happiness, and then the happiness puts water on the fires of grasping. So that hunger begins to weaken and fall away. Even though it's such a big pattern in the mind, has a lot of momentum, it does quiet down. The more happiness there is, and the longer that happiness is there in the mind, the more that hunger, that tendency to grasp, to struggle with life, begins to dissipate. And we start seeing the world not as an animal struggling with moment with moments, moment by moment, but as an animal, it's like we've sort of transcended that hungry animal realm, and we're now in a different realm. We're in this sort of peaceful heart realm, peaceful mind realm. And the whole world looks differently. Things don't push our buttons as much. So this is a way to explore equanimity. You know, as a theme, you can't just try to imitate it, but what you can do is you can you can make noble attempts to be happy by dropping your neurotic activity. But you can't drop your neurotic activity by kind of doing this, you know, because <laughs> that's a neurotic activity itself. <laughs> so the way to drop neurotic activity is to give yourself completely to the present moment. You know, so when you're sitting in meditation, we do that by coming, with, coming into the experience of breathing or the experience of sitting or the experience of hearing or the experience of seeing. You know? We use the neutral activity of our five physical senses. Generally, we don't use smelling or tasting unless we're doing mindfulness of eating. But so predominantly, you know, we use hearing and the tactile experience. But you can use seeing too, just gazing, especially if you're just sort of looking out at the woods or looking out your window or something like that without looking at anything in particular. But we're using this focus on what's ordinary and neutral as a way of dropping everything else. Having some happiness, contentment, 
which extinguishes the fire of grasping, clinging, struggling. And that transforms our view temporarily, the way we're understanding or viewing our lived experience. And things look different. We're experiencing through the wisdom of equanimity instead of the ignorance or the uh, you know neurotic lens of always wanting things to be other than they are, always struggling to make things better than they are, avoid things getting worse than they are. So that's one way to uh, get a taste of equanimity. Now, of course, it's a fragile way because it depends on neurotic activity being suppressed. It's not in the mind. And as you know, it has a tendency to come back. So there we are, you know, just reaching for the light switch, and we notice the mess. And seeing the mess in the desk triggers a lot of neurotic activity, like, oh my god, i got to do all these things. My credit rating's going to go down. I'll never be able to get a loan. You know, and then on and on. That creates a lot of agitation in mind, right? So there are a lot of things that can break that unification of mind. That's why when we sit in meditation, you know, we try to choose places where there aren't too many triggers around us. We don't put a lot of stuff up in a meditation hall here. And what we do put up, we try to have objects that create sort of a peaceful experience in the mind, not objects that stimulate um, agitation in the mind. And so you can do that at home, too. You can sort of, when you, when you want to cultivate this inner contentment, you know, be in places, be around things that don't stimulate a lot of neurotic activity in the mind, a lot of grasping, a lot of fear, a lot of desire. And then you'll get more of those experiences where the mind is content, grasping diminishes, and you're seeing the world with this uh, great mind. You could call it a great mind. So normally our mind is very, in a sense, fixated on the different sense experiences we're tuning into, what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we feel in the body, because we're always evaluating, is this something I need and want? Is this something that could harm me? So we have a particular dependence on sense experience. But when the mind's feeling equanimity, our whole relationship with the sense world, our five physical senses, it changes. We're not dependent. We already are feeling content. So we're not, in a sense, searching for what might be of danger or what might be really good. So our lover walks in the room, but it's a different experience. We see him or her, and it's like uh, we're seen with new eyes. It's not like we don't like them anymore, but it's... It's like there's no dependency, there's no need because of this inner abundance, this inner happiness. Or, you know, we remember there's ice cream in the freezer, but it's not such a big deal. Or remember we got a lot of work to do, but it's not such a big deal. Because of that, the mind state, the view of equanimity, it changes our experiences through our thoughts to everything. The humidity doesn't bug us so much. When we don't have a lot of equanimity, then everything bugs us, right? So we all know that experience. We know we can get more and more irritable, right? Well, if we know that end of the spectrum, what about the other end of the the spectrum? 
Like, what is that movement where things, you know, experience just don't irritate the mind? Doesn't trigger grasping or aversion? Why can't we move in that direction? And what is that movement? That's really what the whole, you know, these six weeks of looking at equanimity is about. It's just to get the sense that our mind is already moving along this spectrum from being over here really irritable. Everything irritates us. Or maybe a better word is we're reactive. So we're very reactive to unpleasant experiences by pushing it away, really reactive to pleasant by grasping, holding, getting to where the mind is, relatively speaking, not reactive. If something really good comes our way, sure, we receive it. But we're not grasping. It's like it's just arriving, you know? And if something bad shows up, we say yes to that, too. I mean, if we could avoid it without causing a lot of pain and suffering, we would. But, you know, sometimes there's nothing we can do. So we say yes to that, too. It's traffic? Okay, yeah, yes. We say yes to the traffic. And then the traffic clears up, and we say yes to that. But the mind isn't suffering because of that. Now, this insight deepens. So the the initial uh, insight and understanding of equanimity comes when we have that temporary happiness because the mind is not caught up in self-centered neurotic activity. A deeper kind of equanimity begins to get established in the mind the more we have insight. Insight simply means, you know, in this tradition of Buddhist practice we call Vipassana, here in the West often, coming out of the Theravada Buddhist tradition, or Southern Buddhism, the kind of Buddhism practiced in Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka. And since it's come to the States over the last 30 years, often people refer to this particular kind of practice as Vipassana, or insight practice. It's just emphasizing this particular part of practice that points to when the mind, the mind's understanding gets shifted. It's like a paradigm shift. So we understand the world this way, and then because, in a sense, new information has come in, the view or the perspective or one's understanding shifts because now the understanding is based on like better data. So, you know, we can grow up in a provincial way based on what our culture tells us and our parents tell us and our friends tell us and our genetics tell us. And, you know, we have a limited perspective. And then we can transform that limited perspective by cultivating clear seeing, seeing things as they actually are. And that's what allows for good data to come in. And the data can't help but transform one's view. And this whole process we call the path of awakening. We wake up to what we are not seeing now. You know? So this is what I meant earlier, too. We need to assume we're not seeing everything. We have to, it's useful to be a little humble and realize my mind is limited. My understanding is limited by you know, my, what I kind of receive from the culture, from genetics. But we're not, we don't have to remain limited. We can cultivate this clear seeing. It's a little chicken and egg-ish, isn't it? We need the equanimity, the clear seeing, the, the sort of um, non-attached, non-identified way of seeing in order to have insight, in order to de- develop more equanimity. But that's how it is. 
we bring whatever equanimity we do have to the practice of mindfulness, seeing things just as they are, which sets in motion insight. And in Buddhist practice, we talk about insight arising in three ways. It's basically seeing the same thing, but different angles on the same thing. And what are we seeing? Well, we're seeing the way things are. So it's, it doesn't matter if we're watching the breath or we're hearing sounds or we're aware of an interaction we're having with another person. The same thing means, see, we're not talking about the specific situation that we're paying attention to, like the breath as opposed to sensations in the knees as opposed to sounds. We're talking about the underlying characteristics of all experience, whether it's a sound, a thought, a sensation, a smell. What are the, what is it about experience that we keep missing? The Buddha even has a list. He has many lists, including the list of what are distortions of one's view, like taking something to be permanent that's actually impermanent, taking something to be pleasant that's actually not pleasant. Right. So that kind of points to these three insights. The first insight is around dukkha, which usually gets translated as suffering, but you could call it stress, a mental pain. It's when the mind is struggling, and we call it dukkha. And this insight into dukkha is, see, normally with our superficial minds, a mind that's not seeing things clearly, normally we assume that struggle is a good thing to do. That mental stress, that mental struggling, it's just uh, this basic assumption that that's what the mind should do, and it leads to good results. If I don't struggle, like let's say you've got a uh, difficult day coming tomorrow. You've got a difficult meeting, and you need to get prepared for the meeting. So here you are at Common Ground on Wednesday night, and when that memory comes up in the mind, the mind probably feels quite justified in getting tight. Oh, yeah, I've got to really be together for that meeting tomorrow. I gotta really I gotta do it right. I gotta avoid this. And and if you notice, if you happen to notice that your mind was tight in that activity, you would just assume, probably we'd all just assume, well that's appropriate because it's important for me that I'm really and this is what this is this basic delusion that we can have insight into. So the basic delusion is somehow mental tension struggling with the present moment is functional. We think that. And that's why we do it. And the insight, of course, then, is the opposite. The insight is seeing that mental struggling, that I'm doing it with my hand, but you know, when the mind does this, that all that is is this. There's no function to it, except we have learned to associate the mental tension, the dukkha, the struggling, with me being responsible or me doing something. And we actually get frightened in relaxing it because we feel <clears throat> a little um, helpless. Like we've become dependent on the feeling of being tight because it gives us a sense that we're doing all we can do. And we're afraid of being in a sense, undefended, even though this doesn't defend us in any way. Like, worrying about needing to be together for the meeting tomorrow 
doesn't make us together for the meeting tomorrow. It's not the same as sitting down and planning what we're going to say. And even if we're planning what we're going to say, the tension and the planning are two different things. So this is an insight we have to have. The more we have that insight into dukkha, that dukkha is always what is it? dysfunctional, you know, doesn't help. This particular kind of struggling, there is a particular kind of struggling that is never functional. It's only just suffering, unnecessary suffering. The suffering of resistance, the suffering of denial, the suffering of hatred, the suffering of, of craving. Craving a new car doesn't help get a new car. I mean, these are obvious things. But it's amazing how, with our superficial, not clear mind, we can justify a lot of craving as if it's functional. You know, craving the perfect partner for us. Does it make that happen? No. It just hurts. That's all it does. It hurts. And because we're deluded, we think that hurt feeling, the feeling of struggle, we feel like it's uh, somehow doing something. So we feel less helpless. But it's just a, a, charade, a charade. It's a mirage. It doesn't make us, it doesn't make anything change except that we feel burdened by it. So the more we have that insight, you can see why a deeper, more resonant equanimity would arise from that insight. Because the more we see, over and over again, little glimpses of this through experience, the more the heart will just not go there. It won't react with resistance, with craving, with aversion, because it realizes it's dysfunctional. It doesn't actually lead anywhere except to tension, mental tension. So it's like, again, this is another way of seeing how equanimity is the, is, the, is the essence of the mind or the default of the mind when it's not caught up in neurotic activity. It's not something we achieve. It's something we rest into when the mind slowly, because of insight, begins to abandon its neurotic activity. And again, one of those ways is to develop concentration. A more resonant way to develop equanimity is to keep seeing how this particular kind of mental suffering, what we call dukkha, is dysfunctional. It never helps. The more we see that, again, we don't need to stop the mind from struggling. We just need to see that the struggling doesn't help. The letting go of it will happen naturally. The mind as a natural system doesn't do things that are insane. It does things that are counterproductive only because it's not seen clearly. But when it sees clearly that struggling is dysfunctional, isn't helping, it just lets go. The letting go isn't something we have to do. We, what we have to do, so to speak, is see that the mental stress, the mental tension, is dysfunctional. We have to see it literally hundreds, probably hundreds of thousands of times with some real clarity. And that's the gradual path of awakening. Now, there's two other ways to talk about this gradual path of awakening. They're really the same, but just different angles on the same thing of seeing dukkha. The other focus could be the waking up through impermanence. So instead of really noticing how the, the mind has this tendency to get tight, 
and to see how that's dysfunctional, you can begin to see how whatever the mind is seeing or experiencing, to really notice its ephemeral nature. And again, we could use exact same examples like the, the uh, meeting that we have tomorrow that's stressful, that uh, we really want to go well, right? So if we're, we focus on it with a sort of self-centered, neurotic view, it gets really big. It seems really important. But if we take our vast view, we realize I've had hundreds of meetings like this already. I'm bound to have a hundred more, or maybe thousands more. And my life has already been characterized by ups and downs, successes and failures. You know, Tomorrow will be somewhere along that spectrum. It will either be successful or it won't. And what, just understanding that that meeting will come and go, just like everything else, in the past has come and gone. Everything in the future will come and go. Just that understanding. Again, we're not pretending anything. We're simply seeing that memory in the mind and the thought about the meeting tomorrow. I mean, that thought about the future in the mind. Just putting it into alignment. That idea of the meeting is something that comes and goes. And even more importantly, and a little bit more subtle, is actually the thought about the meeting isn't the meeting. It's just an ephemeral thought. And in the next moment, you could have a thought about the breeze against your skin or something that happened 20 years ago. But when we take that thought to be more than what it is, it can get really heavy. It can trigger a lot of struggling, a lot of resistance. But when we understand, that's just a thought that is coming and going in the mind. And now here's another thought. And then this is a thought. And even if we do let the thought sort of arise as a picture, okay, there is a meeting tomorrow. I mean, relatively speaking, you know, with some probability, there will be a meeting tomorrow, you know? But even then, even on that conceptual level of thinking about the future with a meeting, even then we can understand this is just something that will come, and then it will go. I mean, it's so powerful to realize when we're going through, like, I had a cold last week. I was down teaching in Iowa with Andy Olensky, and first day I came down with a really bad head cold. And Tuesday I was sort of like dead to the world. I had that sort of pressure headache, and just achy, and sore throat, and clogged. And and, uh, you know, I really, I've, I've done a lot of conscious practice with being sick. And, uh, and so one of the ways is to just understand, not let the mind make this more than what it is. Because I know this is something that is arising and will cease. And so then I'm really on the lookout for how it's getting worse, how it's getting worse and worse. And not freaking out, but really just knowing that actually that movement is something to appreciate. Because if it's getting worse and worse and worse, eventually it's going to hit bottom, and then it's going to get better and better and better. And I can tell you, I really noticed that Tuesday afternoon, I saw that turning point. Because I've really been, I watch this a lot when I'm sick. You know, just knowing that it's getting worse and worse and worse, and then it's going to get better and better and better. And boy, that really changes my attitude about getting sick. 
it's like it's not so terrible to get sick when you know that there's sort of this natural movement. Now, you could say, yeah, but some things don't get better. You know, like I'm getting older and I'm older. It's not like... <laughs> well, we don't actually know that, do we? We don't know. I mean, we, this is, again, another thing the mind does, another self-centered, neurotic thing the mind does. It says, death is the end. It's this incredibly arrogant notion that we just assume. We don't know what death is. Anybody here know with great certainty what death is? No. I mean, we know what happens for all human beings, all living beings, but we don't know what it means. And uh, a lot of people in this world have really strong opinions about what happens at death from all different angles. You know, it's not just, you know, the scientists or the sort of people, materialists, I guess we call them, you know, who think, well, you die and then that's it. The mind is over. And then you have you know, people from different religious backgrounds who have very strong opinions in some other direction. But what's, you know, from a Buddhist point of view, we're, you know, one of the, the big emphasis in Buddhism is experiential, you know, trusting the experience. And what we do know with great, we can say with great confidence, we can have just as much arrogance and we say, we don't know, <laughs> right? But uh, that, that statement, hard, hard for anybody to shake that. You know? Like the religious statement, you could say all kinds of things, then someone would have to get sort of really stuck to their view to sort of defend against maybe the materialist view. And the materialists, you could say a lot of things to them that they'd have to get really tight about. But it's hard to shake the stance, I don't know. I don't know, and I keep an open mind about that. And I think it's really useful to understand the principle of change. You know, when you look at nature, nothing actually ends. Everything is just getting transformed. That's what nature tells us. So that seems like something we can trust. Things keep getting transformed. And uh, the more we see this, the more equanimity arises for us. Neurotic activity tends to get diminished, and the stability of equanimity gets established. There's a great line I read in one of Jack Kornfield's book. It's not his line. He was quoting somebody. And this is a, somewhat of a paraphrase, but something to do that uh, we prefer the quicksand of somethingness rather than resting in the firm ground of emptiness, or the firm ground of not having set opinions about things. And this is pointing to the insight into impermanence or the insubstantial ephemeral nature of our actual experience, whether we're talking about sounds or sensations or thoughts. doesn't matter. Whatever we really pay attention to, we'll notice it's ephemeral. The only thing that's not ephemeral in life are our concepts. If I keep repeating a concept in my mind, like, I'm right and you're wrong, I'm right and you're wrong, it can give the semblance of like a real edifice, like, I'm really right and you're really wrong, you know, or the United States is great and something else is bad. And it can feel real, but nothing else in the world has that kind of substance except the concept that's being repeated in a mind. 
And when we actually look at what a concept is, if you actually see an idea, not from within the sort of content of that idea, but see it as a thought in the mind, you realize how insubstantial it is. No matter how rigid your opinion or view or somebody else's opinion or view is, it's actually not much of anything, really. And it's nice to kind of have that understanding as we see the world because it really leads towards equanimity. Next week I'll talk about the spirit aspect that develops equanimity. It's just seeing experience from a conditional or an impersonal point of view. And you see how the three are very related. Seeing mental stress or dukkha is uh, when that dukkha is abandoned. When we see that it's dysfunctional, leads to equanimity. Seeing change everywhere leads to equanimity. Seeing that things in the mind, outside of us, everything is following the natural causes and conditions. There's no center to it. Seeing that also leads to equanimity. And we'll talk more about that next week, but uh, I wanted to save the last 15 minutes or so for comments from the group or questions that you might have, experiences from your own practice you'd like to share about equanimity. And it's also really valuable to hear about reactivity, the opposite of equanimity. We learn, we learn from both, actually. So what comes to mind? Yeah, Anya. believe in something too. Yeah, Buddhists believe in something too, but like I said, it's experiential, so we believe in the way things are. Like we, we, we orient around our direct experience. Not our, I mean, this, the problem is that we want to orient not our experience as seen through our neurotic, self-centered perspective, but we want to orient around uh, what we understand coming out of a clear, non-distorted way of seeing as we move more in that direction. So it's a little tricky because we might think, well, my view isn't distorted, so I am the best. <laughs> you know, I deserve your respect. You know, and then it can. So, but what we what we need to do is understand that ultimately. Uh, human beings are, have to be self-reliant, that, that it's always problematic when we're taking our um, information from somebody else, including like the Buddhist tradition. So the Buddhist tradition, you know, the set of teachings, more than anything, is teaching us to be self-reliant by cultivating clarity, calm and clarity, calm because it supports clarity, when we're not calm, we're not clear. So calm, leading to clarity, leading to seeing things as they actually are, leading to a life lived out of seeing things as they actually are. 
which is a life of wisdom and compassion. So in a sense, I mean, it's harder to talk about. It's easy to say, I believe in God. It's harder to say, I believe in cultivating calm and clarity, seeing things as they are, and letting this life come out of that, letting, letting my lived experience and my choices, my understanding, letting it come out of that clarity. And, and being fearless, meaning I'm willing to see, I'm willing to go wherever clarity leads me. Like no preconceived ideas. I'm not like clear in order to see what I think is true. I'm cultivating clarity to see what is true how it actually is in this experience and trusting that it will be good that that suffering really arises because of the disconnect the view isn't connected with the way things are and we get a lot of terrible things happening obviously in the world because humans our perspective our view of things is so disconnected from the way things actually work and so we can justify all kinds of horrendous behaviors in the world. Yeah, absolutely. It it is as natural of a process as the process of being ignorant is, but it just needs to get set in motion, like just like denial and distraction, a life of denial and distraction, leads the mind to be more disconnected. Being disconnected, it makes choices out of not being connected. So it's making bad choices, which makes things not work so well, which requires us to be more in denial and more distracted to survive. How that leads to a world of a lot of violence and injustice and harm. It works exactly. There's also another natural movement. As, but we have to set it in motion. And that's where the confidence comes out. It has to come from our own seeing that coming into alignment actually feels better. There's more ease in the mind. And we start to trust the heart that can see clearly, that can understand more deeply, that can respond more appropriately in the, in the moment. We trust it. I mean, we really trust it. And, but initially, what we trust is this other way doesn't work. You know, grasping doesn't work, struggling doesn't work. That also is an insight. Knowing that this doesn't work is actually really helpful insight. And at the beginning, that's all we have. And that makes us willing to explore this other way. Yeah, thanks, Sonia. Other thoughts? Yeah, when? Yeah. Well, but the thing is, it, that's true if it was about things relatively unimportant, like whether the world is round or flat. Because actually, in a lived experience, it's not really relevant whether the world's round or flat. But what we're gathering experience about is our, basically, we're learning about the mind. And subjectively, we have everything we need to learn about it. Do you know what I mean? And uh, 
not understanding this lived experience, this sort of mind experience, uh, it's like everything that we experience in life is based on how we understand this lived, lived experience. I mean, this is one of the real insights of the Buddha that our view of things, our understanding, is the most important thing in the universe. Like a biologist would say, you know, the most important thing is the sort of material aspects of the present moment, like how the brain is functioning or what's going on. But from the Buddhist point of view, the most important thing in any moment is how the mind understands what's going on. And so very much so, it's a mind-created world. Now, that's not our normal way of understanding things. We think there's a world that we're trying to understand. But the world we're trying to understand is actually, the real world we're trying to understand is how the mind is understanding the world. That's what we want to understand. The world itself is kind of, I forget what the, the term is, but it's like the, it's, it's the false god. You know, it's like what we think is important, but it isn't important. So our orientation always goes out, in a sense, into the world. And we're not that interested in the mind that's knowing the world. But it turns out to be the most important thing. And, and there are little glimpses of this. Like you can be in a really negative funk, right? And then something happens, some little thing happens, and, and the mind changes, and now a moment before, the world seemed really heavy and unworkable. And now, the world seems great. But the only thing that shifted was our attitude. And this happens all the time. But we tell ourselves a story that something out in the world changed. We don't actually let ourselves see that, oh, we just shifted our attitude. So this is hard. And we don't want to just believe it on faith, that it's a mind-created world. But this is what I meant about following our practice wherever it leads. And it leads to some pretty dramatic shifts in perspective. And one of these shifts can be described as an external orientation to an internal orientation. And it leads to a lot of equanimity. Because the lack of the reactivity is based on a worldview that says, this stuff matters, you know, whether the world is flat or round, whether you're nice to me or mean to me. That's what I build my happiness upon. And the spiritual view is different. It's a, it's a different orientation. Other thoughts people have? Yes, Nanny.
you so much for sharing your practice with us. It's great. Maria, did you have a thought? We have uh, just a minute left. Well, I was going to say that that shift in perception has happened to me dramatically when I'm shopping for years and so that I need to do. Maybe a little louder speaking. Oh, I, I hate shopping for clothes. Uh, and uh, it's one of the, but, but, you know, after whatever, hundreds of thousands of hours of whatever, meditating, self-help groups, therapy, hundreds of thousands of dollars, etc. Every once in a while, when I go shopping, and I try something on, and I'm like looking at myself and thinking, why did I think this is a good idea? You know, I need some help here. And then it's like, I'll look again. Whoa, you look great. You know, I mean, I, I can't explain it. But it's, um, it, it really, I mean, it's very, probably because, well, myself and a lot of women, I guess, have, like, body image issues. And so that's one of the places where it's most dramatically manifest to me that it's purely a matter of my own perception, that within a split second, it's almost like I'm looking at somebody else. Yeah. First I look bad, then I look good. Yeah. And it's like, what rut the mind is going down that moment? A negative rut or a positive rut? Yeah. Yeah, and that fluidity, the more we see how fluid the mind is, it kind of goes back to what I was saying in response to Wynn's comment about a mind-created world. It's like we realize so much of our ups and downs are mind-created then we start having a more equanimous view about whether we're in a, a dark rut or a beautiful place, you know? It's like, well, now it's beautiful. Now it's dark. Because we know it's sort of a concocted state and it will change. Yeah, that's a good place to end. Thank you, Maria. And let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Maybe take a breath together, a couple breaths. It's useful to reflect, reflect on our aspiration and to go beyond just living and practicing for ourselves, but to have a sense of how wholesome it is to cultivate calm and clarity and equanimity. And we can offer it as a gift. So whatever, to whatever degree we can cultivate these wholesome qualities in the mind. We happily offer to our parents and our friends, our teachers and mentors, happily offering the benefits of our practice to all beings without exception. May we all be causes for happiness and peace and freedom from suffering in the world.